Hi everyone! I'm Katie Gordon and I'm missing my co-host Brandon Saxon this week while he's out of town at a training. I'm really excited for you to listen to this interview with journalist Jesse Single. He's a contributing writer and former staffer at New York Magazine where he edited Science of Us and was a writer at large. Jesse has a book coming out about why half-baked behavioral science ideas go viral. He also has a newsletter at jessiesingle.substack.com as well as a podcast you can find links to there. I definitely recommend checking both of them out. Jesse covers a wide range of fascinating topics, including psychology and behavioral science. Journalists play a major role in communicating research findings to the public, and I really appreciate the approach that Jesse takes to his work. It was a lot of fun talking to him about his process, his projects, and about the profession of journalism. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode. Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hi, Jesse. Thanks so much for being on today. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and just talk a little bit about journalism. And there's been some intersection with mental health and psychology in your work. So that's what I'm going to mostly focus on today. I thought we'd start off by just getting an idea of how you got into journalism in the first place. What was your pathway into journalism? Sure. Um, journalism is one of those fields where it's sort of like good if if you're not sure what you want to do and are just interested in the world in general. So I was a philosophy major in college. I always wrote um, opinion columns usually for my college newspapers. And yeah, when I graduated, I just couldn't really see myself doing anything other than writing. So I did some, um, whenever I sort of tell the story, I'm always make, make sure to point out that journalism has a pretty bad class problem. I was able to do unpaid internships, where which are an unfortunately big part of um, getting a toehold in journalism. So that that led me to D.C., to my first staff jobs. And yeah, it's just sort of been an evolution from opinion writing more toward writing about psychology and, and human behavior. But um, yeah, that's that's sort of the short version. What made you shift from the opinion to the psychology and human behavior stuff? I was a contractor at the Boston Globe, which is my hometown paper, working for the editorial page. And it was great. I got to like write a lot of unsigned editorials and columns and online stuff. But I became less and less interested in, you know, writing the 80th article about why people should be in favor of gay marriage and more interested in learning about why people disagree so fiercely on subjects like gay marriage. And that led me to political psychology, to thinkers like Jonathan Haidt. And it just, it opened up a whole new sort of area of, um, interest for me. And I also ended up getting a degree in public policy, which uh, taught me a lot about enough about sort of statistics and economics and quantitative stuff where I could, um, I think, write maybe better and deeper stories. Yeah, I wondered a little bit about that because I first read your work covering psychology research in New York Magazine's Science of Us section. 
And I certainly notice attention to things like statistics and it seemed like broader policy type issues. And I'm wondering how it is that you approach those articles so that your reporting is accurate, but also engaging and accessible. That just seems like a really tough balance to me. Yeah, that's the, um, that's the tricky part is one thing I found is like when I was at Science of Us, they a lot of the most exciting stuff you want to cover is not as rigorous as it appears. University press offices will often publish press releases where they say, oh my God, we found X. And then if you read the actual paper, which journalists should always do, but often don't do, you'll see they didn't really find X or they, they found X in a particularly p-hacky way, or they found a cousin of X that's less exciting than X, but not really X. So a big part of doing good science journalism is actually knowing either when not to cover a study or when to cover it in a skeptical way. But it, it's tricky to have that balance where you don't want to oversell stuff, but you also, you know, you want to keep readers engaged and exciting. And I think covering, treating debunking as its own journalistic task and trying to show people how psychological thinking and research can go astray is sort of a way to do both. Is that some of what led you into covering replication crisis topics? Yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in like human bias and, and why we get stuff wrong and academic controversies in general. I've now, you know, I've covered academic controversies, political science, sociology, psychology. So yeah, I just love that stuff for some reason. I love I love nerdy fights and yeah, I, I've enjoyed covering those. Okay. Well I wanna ask you about one particularly excellent article that you wrote. I mentioned this one of the times when we met up in New York that I really appreciated your article, The Myth of the Ever More Fragile College Student, which I'll link to in the show notes, but basically examines the question as to whether mental health problems are on the rise and whether it's due to this posited idea of fragility or being overprotected or coddled. That's kind of the short version of it. And I'm curious what your process was like writing that article from the initial idea to the final version. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it was just sort of a certain degree of skepticism that you can make grand statements about college students as a group becoming more fragile, more neurotic, more anything. And I was particularly curious about to what extent um, my sense is college campuses are getting more diverse. You have more and more first generation college students. You have like a population of kids who maybe 20 or 30 years ago wouldn't have access to college or wouldn't have even thought they could go to college. And I think that probably brings different challenges to counseling offices, which is, you know, what I heard when I when I interviewed people who work in counseling offices or who study that sort of thing. So I think it was just it struck me as an example of a situation where you have this one very simple storyline. Kids are getting more fragile. And I like the idea of sort of exploding those simple storylines and seeing what's underneath what's left after. And in this case, it was just like a variety of really complicated demographic and mental health trends. And yeah, I just try to especially anything campus related. Um, and you came on my podcast, which which I appreciate, and you helped me sort of cut through some of these oversimplified narratives too. But I just think that people are so fascinated by college students and campus activism that some oversimplified storylines can take hold. I think that's true. And I, what struck me about the way you wrote about that is you approached it very much like a scientist in terms of saying what kind of data would support or refute this hypothesis and it sounded like you really tried to hunt that down and use what was available, but there wasn't a ton of it. And then you also looked at alternative explanations, which, of course, are really important for science, too. 
Yeah, it's just one of those things where you're not going to like go in there and find a shining golden clear capital A answer like anything about a big messy group of people is going to the underlying causes of whatever is going on is going to be complicated. I appreciated that article so much that I actually recently went to go speak at a university about college mental health and they were curious about what some of the causes and certain trends, depending on what data you're looking at, causes the uptick. And that and your article was one of the things that I mentioned. And I noticed that it came out four years ago, and I was wondering if your view has changed at all since that time. I think in certain ways I've gotten a little bit more sympathetic to the idea that if you're like if you're immersed in a community where people constantly talk about, you know, there are okay people overstate the campus culture war stuff. There also are sub communities on the left where like, you know, Milo comes to campus or even Condoleezza Rice comes to campus and it's treated like a real um, violation or like someone's going to be hurt or traumatized by it. I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the idea that in some isolated cases, kids get sort of so consumed by activism and politics that they might be doing themselves a little bit of harm by conceiving disagreement as trauma uh, or disagreement as some form of harm. That said, you and others I've talked to have helped me realize, like, you know, most kids aren't like that. Most kids aren't doing activism that intensely. Most kids aren't sort of far left or, you know, or far right. Yeah. So I think I've, I've actually like drifted a little bit more toward curmudgeonly get the kids off my lawn, just because I, I do think certain ways of thinking about the world and politics have taken hold a little bit that probably are not adaptive for an 18 or 19 year old taking their first stab at, at living in the broader world. But I don't think my overall thinking of how I'd approach that story, a story like that has changed that much. Saying on the mental health theme, but changing topics a little bit, I have really enjoyed your podcast so far. How are you liking podcasting, by the way? I like it. Yeah, it's really, it's rewarding. I thought our episode was great, so thanks again. It's, um, it's, uh, I like it. I need to figure out exactly how much time I'm going to put into it, how many episodes I'm going to try to churn out, and sort of where it's going. Because I think, you know, if you're a journalist now, you just need to have your, what's the expression I'm looking for? Basically, your hand in a lot of different baskets. You need to have... You need to hedge your bets a little because the industry is so uncertain. But the short version is I love the ability to just like call up someone interesting, talk for an hour and, you know, edit it a little bit and put it online. I love that part, too, but I understand what you mean, I think. And also for me anyway, if you have any inclination towards trying to perfect or edit things, I think it can end up taking a lot of time. So it is hard to balance it with other responsibilities sometimes. I think a big part of like growing up, like when I was in grad school, the most well-adjusted people would recognize when they'd assign 250 pages of reading, but you really only have to do 150 pages of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of similar with like a podcast, like, and maybe this is just my own uh, lack of big five conscientiousness, but I, I would drive <laughs> myself crazy if I like went through multiple rounds of edits, trying to get every transition right. I just, I think especially early on when you're, you have sort of a new hobby or something you're not sure you're great at anyway, like, you just got to sort of do it and do the best you can and, and worry about making it, you know, getting to 80% good, not 100% good. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's diminishing returns after a certain point. And frankly, there's there's just not enough time to do that. And I don't know that it makes that big of a difference in the final product anyway, because podcasts are really supposed to be like listening to conversations for the most part. They're not all supposed to be like This American Life or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, one of the episodes that 
recently had on that I really liked was with Chris Arnaud. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I didn't know this, but I believe it's Arnaudi. Okay, Arnaudi. For example, I may not edit that out. <laughs> I think I'll leave it. Get to 80%, Katie. <laughs> so I really, I liked that. He has a book coming out that just sounds incredible. I definitely am going to order it. But what struck me throughout the conversation was the compassion that you both express toward people suffering from long-term drug addiction. There are a lot of people who don't speak that way about homeless people, sex workers, drug users, or people who are in those types of circumstances. So I was really curious about where your sense of sympathy for them comes from. Yeah, it's nothing, I mean, it's nothing really personal. I don't have any compelling story here. I just, I very much, um, I think if we could ever grapple with the full extent to which so many human outcomes are just luck and almost nothing but luck, it would be terrifying. And I think we put up a lot of psychological defense mechanisms to not grapple with that. So yeah, I, I just, I'm of the mind that there's like, there's a universe where I'm a fundamentalist Muslim terrorist. There's a universe where I'm an addict. Any of this could happen to any of us. And I think those of us who live stable, comfortable lives should realize that, you know, I'm sure it feels like I worked hard and you worked hard and that's partly attributable to like why we're doing well, but, um, any, any of this could happen to any of us. Like misfortune strikes really randomly. So yeah, that, that's just my general attitude. And I think if you can try to stick to that attitude, you will treat people decently. I agree. I think there's a lot of humility in that and recognizing how those circumstances contribute to things, those that you can't control. But I think on the other hand, the thing that some people struggle with is feeling like that means that they don't they can't exert control over their lives or that there's not any meaning. Right. And do you find that it ever gets into that direction if you start thinking that way? Yeah, it does a little bit. Um, well, and I know that, what is it, is it like locus of control? The humans like definitely have a need to feel like they're in control. When we lose that, we lose everything. I think I my general philosophy is like zoomed out. No one really has control over anything zoomed in i can at least like do the best i can to make the podcast decent or to turn in an assignment in a way i'm proud of i think in in day-to-day life i do have a lot of stuff i do have control over um if anything i have too much stuff i have control over i just have like a very unstructured freelancer's life so maybe that makes it easier to survive the grander uncertainty when in day-to-day life you do have a fair amount of control over what you do that kind of balance there where you have things that are due to luck and default situations and then realizing there are things that you have control over or feel like you have control over can be a healthy balance but for some reason and maybe this is another theme in some of your writing that I've seen it seems like some people have a hard time not going in one direction or the other so it's always nice to hear a kind of synthesis of two viewpoints I think. Thank you. Now I'd love to talk about your book I'm very interested in the topic area. So would you mind saying what your book's about and what your aims are for it? Yeah. So it's called, it's provisionally titled The Quick Fix. It's about the question of why, particularly in America, we take these fancy, sexy new ideas from behavioral science, uh, the stuff you see in TED Talks, why we think these ideas are going to solve complicated societal problems, even though they, A, they have a poor track record. It's very rare a new psychological idea comes along and, and really changes stuff all that much. B, especially in the replication crisis era, it's often the case that like a new idea comes along and is 
enthusiastically promoted, but then a year or two later, we realized there was not much there in the first place. So the book is an exploration of those sorts of ideas and why they catch on and, and, and what it can just tell us about, you know, American society and to a certain extent, American stagnation and the fact that our we don't really see help on the horizon coming from our political system. And a lot of stuff feels like it's falling apart. So I think it makes sense that at a time like this, we would turn to psychologists and to, and to science in general to solve these problems. And so the you'll, as part of the book, you'll go into the psychology of why people are drawn to it, but then also outline the downsides of that. Yeah. Like, um, you know, one example that I've talked a lot about is the implicit association test, which is a test that, uh, purports to reveal how implicitly biased you are against usually members of different races. And, you know, this test has, has, it's become a juggernaut. It's the go-to way to explain racially discrepant outcomes. And, you know, my argument is you, you shouldn't be exposing people to a test that doesn't actually predict their behavior. And you also, if you're trying to end racism and make the world more equitable, you can't do so on the basis of shoddy science and half-baked ideas. That's my main critique. But I just think we're, especially in America, we're really drawn to these sort of individualist self-helpy solutions. And and I think that's what something like the IAT is. It offers a promise that we can identify your implicit bias and we can dispel it somehow, even though at this point in time, given the research, we don't have any real evidence on either front that it can actually accurately identify how implicit bias you are. And there's no evidence we know how to like fix that. So it feels like it's doing something productive to administer an IAT or to try to intervene at the level of implicit bias. But in reality, the data don't really support that it is doing anything to reduce racism, for example. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that's my argument, at least. And I and the, you know, the biggest meta-analysis we have, which has Brian Nozick, um, who, who's one of the chief evangelists of the IAT on it, uh, came out recently. Uh, yeah, it just shows these interventions don't really do anything. So it's, uh, to me, an open question why we're spending probably hundreds of millions of dollars on them. That's why I think that your book is going to be really important, because I think that there's not just the cost of whether the intervention, maybe it doesn't work or maybe it causes some harm and whatever it is. It's also just opportunity cost where those efforts could be spent elsewhere for people who are interested in, the, in attaining those outcomes. Yeah. And that's that's interesting to think about, because like, I think that's true on paper. But I think the sad part is like, society will generate, you know, $300 million for fancy implicit bias training, but it often won't generate $300 million to like, just make sure poor black kids have a hot lunch or a hot breakfast. It's like the basic stuff often gets overlooked. Um, and I sort of think it gets overlooked either way, because we just don't like feeding poor kids a lot of the time. Um, but but the, the fancy TED Talk stuff often does get a lot of attention and funding. So you, you said you feel like that maybe appeals to some of the individualistic or American parts of culture that if we look at something like taking that money and just giving it to people instead, that kind of goes against the way that many people believe societal issues are solved. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of... Um, a lot of the time proposed solutions to American social problems need to be filtered through some sort of self-help ethos. E even something as simple as like often instead of money, giving people money, we'll make it a tax cut or a tax credit as though we need to say like, well, you're contributing, but then we'll give some of it back to you. I, I just think for various reasons where, you know, we're much more individualistic, we're much more hostile to sort of 
what are really in the rest of the uh, like in the EU considered pretty moderate social policies that that help keep a lot of people afloat. I, I just think we have a very different political psychology and political culture that ends up leaving a lot of people behind. Right, like implicit bias, I've heard some people argue the whole idea was to make people less defensive, which seems like a good thing, but just in effect, it doesn't seem like there's much support that it that it does anything and that it actually can make people feel worse about themselves, at least anecdotally, when they get the test results suggesting they have high implicit bias. Right, and also like even if... um. Hypothetically, even if it did make people less defensive, I, I would argue that's unethical because the as long unless you present the test in a very specific way where you're transparent about its limitations, you know it, you can't educate someone by telling them something false about themselves or unproven about themselves. I just think it's sort of a riddled with ethical and psychometric issues that that haven't really sunk in and people don't really talk about. I I completely agree with you and. I actually have two friends that are professors that use your article with their undergraduate students to learn about the implicit association task so that they have an understanding of the importance of, of understanding validity and all of those things when you're actually looking at measures because that's the basis of all the psychological research. If the measure's no good, then the research, you can't really interpret it. So I appreciate that you took something that I think is really was controversial within psychology, but then made it accessible for other people to read too. Thank you. Yeah, that makes me happy that professors uh, assigned it. Definitely. And I actually had students in one of my classes take the IAT. I did describe the limitations, but it was before your article came out. And then I just stopped doing it altogether after reading what you wrote, because I think that even like you're saying, even if you give them all transparently about, well, there are these flaws in the measure, it still might stick with them. And I didn't want to risk that they would think things about themselves that I can't say are true and that might negatively impact them. Yeah, no, I think that's a more responsible approach than, than what most people are taking. I think that's right. Okay, so um, anything else about your book that you wanted me to ask you? No, I mean, I hope... Um... I hope it'll be of interest to anyone curious about how science gets translated to a lay audience and how, you know, both journalists and researchers themselves need to do better and need to not overhype ideas and not make claims that aren't backed up by the data. I think that's a great point. I think in practice, it is hard because it is competing against, as you mentioned, maybe the psychological motivation to oversimplify certain things so that they make sense to us or we feel like we can fix them quickly. Yeah, definitely. So how do you think that changing changing topics, how do you think that social media, maybe especially Twitter, has affected journalism? I think it's had a horribly pernicious influence on it. I I mean it's in different areas had different effects. Like so in psychology writing, uh it probably nudges the incentive toward like sexy, grabby headlines that will go viral very quickly. Um so it just tends to make everything a little bit more superficial and not thought through. The one upside is like I follow you and a bunch of other psychologists and I can get like, um, you know, an unfiltered view of what social scientists themselves are saying. So that's on the positive side of the ledger and that's important. But overall, um, Twitter in particular is just like radical uh radicalizing journalists basically like because everyone's looking around and they don't want to say anything that their other journalist buddies will respond negatively to so it just it really pushes people toward a certain groupthink and toward 
I don't want to sound overdramatic, but it has the effect of like crushing any dissent. If it's a hot button issue or like a story everyone's talking about, you do not want to be like the New Yorker DC journalist who has a different take on it. And you just iterate that over time and think about what it does to the way people assign and write stories. And I'm just I'm just very down on it. I'm worried about what it's doing to my profession. And do you think that it's possible for journalists to exist in 2019 without having some Twitter activity? Yeah, I think if you're like already fairly established and you have steady work, like if you have a staff job, um, I mean, I've heard some journalists say like their bosses won't let them not be on Twitter, but I'm not sure that's true that often. Like you could always turn off notifications and just tweet your own stuff out when it comes out. I do know like pretty big name journalists who just don't uh, follow. They don't read their at mentions, which I think is important. I wish I had the discipline to do that. I think journalists, I'm rambling, but I think journalists overrate the importance of Twitter for like doing their job well. If you leave it, you definitely feel like you're being left out of a conversation. That conversation is frequently stupid and hysterical. So leaving it can make you smarter. Most of my friends in life are not on Twitter. So if I ever bring something up, it's a pretty quick corrective when they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I think that's actually been good. But for you, it seems like a lot of people, well, at least other professionals in your field are all on Twitter. Well, well not all, yeah, but some. <laughs> no, it's definitely true. But I, I'm lucky that like most of my friends are not journalists and they're not that online. So I've had, um, you know, I went to a bachelor weekend we drove up we stopped for lunch and i was in the midst of some impossible to describe blow up with people piling on me because i had insulted some alt-right figure blah 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 um i tried to describe it to my friends like around the table at this restaurant mex uh mexican restaurant and their eyes just glazed over because it was so convoluted and so stupid that this thing that felt very important to me in the moment was completely meaningless and i think it's i think the people who are harmed most by social media are the people who have don't have offline friends who are just in the real world. Cause like the worst thing you can do is think Twitter is a really important thing. If you have some friends, like it sounds you like you have who will be confused if you explain Twitter beef to them, that's really important because it's all garbage and stupid. It is. I had a friend once say something to me in a very nice way, something like, I think you're magnifying, like not magnifying, but the the importance of what you're talking about is magnified when it doesn't affect most people. And I was like, that's very true. And now I think about that a lot. I think that it's hard for it to not feel important while you're logged on or something like that. Yep, I agree. I mean, and the, the one um, complicating factor is that it does affect the way journalists operate just because journalists are on it all day, every day. So in one sense, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to a lot of people in the real world, but it definitely affects the shape of coverage. And it, it just it, it seeps into every aspect of mainstream elite journalists' lives. So it's complicated. Yeah, and that way I could see it mattering for your job, especially as you've covered some internet culture stuff, right? That's been part of what you've written about? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, the internet's just like, um, you know, if you're fascinated by like, in-group, out-group dynamics or rumors, Twitter and social media are just these like horrible but fascinating and irresistible petri dishes to understand those phenomena. And if you're not online, do you feel like you'd miss out on some important stories or ideas or things that you should cover? No, I think on balance, no. Like if I spent the time I spend on Twitter doing what journalists used to do, which is like calling up professors and talking them off the record and just building relationships more, um, uh, on net, that would probably be better, actually. 
So we, we touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious if you've noticed specific ways that your writing has been affected by Twitter or that your work's been affected by Twitter. Yeah, I think there've been times, uh, every journalist self-censors because of Twitter, like you don't say stuff you would say otherwise. I think it has, as we've been discussing, discussing, um, that was a Freudian slip. I'm disgusted <laughs> by Twitter. Um, basically, it warps your perception of what matters and what public opinion is because this, the Twitter community feels so salient and nearby and important that um, – let me give you one concrete example. There was a leftist internet subcommunities got really mad at Elizabeth Warren for saying – you know, she's a big-time social democrat, pretty far to the left. She said something like, at root, I'm still a capitalist or something like that. You know, people flip their lids over it for days. It's still a thing. People denounced her. In reality, if you zoom out at the level of America, no one is going to not vote for Elizabeth Warren in a general election because she says she's a capitalist. Most Americans have like complicated views on this stuff. But just these very niche, radical opinions sort of get blown so out of proportion. And I think that's probably affected my my writing at some point. But I'm trying to sort of take a step back and just be less um, actively engaged in Twitter overall. Yeah, that's a great example. Do you have certain correctives when you're writing or or thinking about writing a pitch to kind of check yourself to see if your impressions are accurate or if they're more based on things you saw through Twitter conversations? I think like, um, especially now that I've started a newsletter, I probably, I've always gotten some emails from readers, but I get more now. And I think getting a sense of what people around the country think and how they react to my writing is an important corrective. Cause I, at the end of the day, uh, I don't have it in me to be like the out, outrage guy who is constantly just mad at the same stuff everyone else is mad about. Like, I think my niche is, I hope a little bit more thoughtful than that. And when nuanced is called for nuanced, um, and you know, nuance doesn't mean like, Oh, let's talk about the good sides of separating kids from their parents at the border and locking them up. Like there's, there's limitations to it and it's a complicated conversation, but yeah, I think like just talking to normal people and realizing that even when it comes to like the average story that runs on New York magazine, the median reader of that might be more to the left than the median American and different in certain ways, but it's that's a very different crowd than the median person on Twitter. Twitter is just the most radical, the most angry and loud, and, and you need to like correct for that and sort of find a way to sort of uh, soften their volume a little bit. Well, thanks for talking about Twitter. Anything else we should talk about with Twitter before we move on to something else? No, I think that's... Uh... Yeah, it's complicated, you know, but uh, yeah, I just, uh, if you're a journalist, you should be on Twitter less, basically. So are there examples of particularly good or bad fictional depictions of journalism? And I ask that because the premise of this podcast, although it's definitely gone in a lot of different directions, was to evaluate fictional depictions of mental health with the idea that people get a lot of information from movies and TVs and it's not always accurate. So I was wondering how you think about depictions of journalism in terms of accuracy. Yeah, so it's embarrassing, but I haven't consumed that much pop culture about journalism just because like it's it's what I do. So I'm actually less interested in other people's depictions of it. That said, I really like a lot of people. I love Spotlight. which is about the Boston Globe's coverage of the Catholic sex abuse scandal. And I just thought it was a wonderful movie, in in part because it didn't overhype things. Like, it sort of showed that journalism at its purest is 
um, there's this expression. I think it's about being an airline pilot where it's like flying is like long moments of boredom interrupted sporadically by like moments of sheer terror. There's something a little bit similar to journalism where like you really keep your head down, you do your job. And then once in a while you stumble onto something where like, holy crap, this is huge. So, you know, in spotlight, they showed the moments when they were getting these firsthand accounts, I think on someone's doorstep of the abuse they'd been victimized by and the process of putting that story together and pulling the records and just building it into something they could print. And, you know, I'm already nostalgic for that because it's sort of becoming a little bit of a lost art because there isn't, there's less and less funding for that kind of work, but I just thought the film beautifully captured what that process looks like from the little bit of investigative reporting I've done. I actually haven't seen it, but now I do want to see it. You should. It's great. Yeah. That sounds good. So it sounds like, understandably, a kind of theme that you've had is that you're worried about the direction of journalism for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, I'm I'm worried. I mean, the, the main worry is structural, that... No one's found a way to pay for it now that the the print model's dead, classifieds, ads, stuff like that is mostly dead. Um, I also, I really am worried, I have to admit, that like among progressive journalism, a bigger and bigger chunk of the people in my universe, I, I think they primarily see themselves as activists, or they probably wouldn't admit to that, but like that's that's what they are, that's how they act. They respond to information the way an activist would, and that worries me a lot because like I've taken pride in, in having an identity where I, I have certain values. I have progressive values. I'm not going to like hide my politics, but I, I do think it's important as a journalist to be able to call out BS when you see it and to not carve people up so neatly into good and bad and trustworthy and untrustworthy and just take each story on its own merits. And I just think there's um all the trend lines are bad in that direction when it comes to the, the corner of journalism I inhabit. Is there like an ethical rule within journalism that you're supposed to, I guess, adhere as as separate from your own ideological beliefs? Or what does journalism say about that kind of thing? A lot of those ethical guidelines are, are communicated via sort of informal norms. And the norms you're subjected to will vary a great deal. Like if you're in the newsroom of a major metropolitan daily versus, uh, you know, in the offices at Jezebel, it depends so much on which editors you come into contact with when, you know, what kind of publication you write for. There's, I'd say overall, the sort of traditional journalistic norms are falling by the wayside. And in some cases, that's good. Like, you don't you don't want to be straight down the middle. You don't want to pretend there's any such thing as true journalistic objectivity because you get, you get bad stuff when that happens. You get sort of, you know, credulous coverage of weapons of mass destruction or whatever. But it feels like things have swung too far in the other direction where everyone is just like an activist pretending to be a journalist. And yeah, sorry, I'm rambling, but the point is like, it, it totally depends on your specific context as a journalist and like which editors you admire and which editors admire you Two two journalists at the same age can get totally different messages about what is and isn't appropriate behavior. Even though we, you know, we all share certain baseline beliefs about, don't plagiarize. You you know, most people understand you should give someone a chance to respond if you're going to write something negative about them. Although that could vary too. But uh, yeah, the, it's complicated. Oh, you're not rambling. I, I think this is really interesting and, in, and important. And I think that, I, I guess I'm curious what some of the other psychological factors might be in some of that behavior. It sounds like some of it is at least that dictate those norms, how much are those influenced by trying to get clicks and readership versus other factors? 
I think it's a complicated mix. Like, I think um, I was really disappointed with how a lot of progressive outlets covered the Covington kids, to be honest. And I know that's probably like it's a controversial subject, maybe a controversial opinion. But uh, to me, when you watch the full video, it, it 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 seemed like a very confusing situation where it was hard to assign that much blame to these random high schoolers in a complicated, confusing situation. Everyone's yelling at everyone. I thought the initial reporting on it was really inaccurate. And when the more com- when the longer, more complicated video came out, I saw progressive journalists sort of doubling down on it. And I think in the moment, what's happening there is not necessarily let's get page views by beating up on these kids. It's more tribal and um, psychological than that. It's it's journalists who feel like they're on the good team. We're fighting against the evil kids in the MAGA hats. We're going to make sure they get punished for it. So, yeah, it's uh psychology and tribalism are really big parts of it. it it's it's more deep rooted than like we think this will get paid views although that's obviously a factor a lot of the time well, the idea if i'm hearing you correctly is that if i send this particular kind of message it might advance my agenda so that kind of justifies rushing with this story is that is that what you mean or is it more like they it's just genuinely affecting the way people perceive the story in the first place i think um journalist like in the case of the Covington kids watching all the other New York liberal journalists topple all over one another to portray the kids as as evil as possible on Twitter is definitely going to prime a journalist to write about it in a certain way or to view it in a certain way because I think when we when something uh emotionally arousing happens I think our first impression of it sort of frames things in a certain way and I think the way the people in our community respond frames things in a certain way so there's a inability to take a step back and to say like look, at root, I'm a journalist. It's my job to accurately comment on this. And I think Twitter contributes to that. Thanks for explaining that. I I think I I can understand what you mean. It seems like also with journalism, there's often just this pressure to to move quickly before a story is no longer relevant. And that seems like that wouldn't help anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've been talking mostly about things that you see in kind of your area of, of progressive journalism. Is your most of your concern because that's the domain? Well, I don't know if you'd consider your journalism in that direction. Maybe you just I- identify your politics that way. But is your concern mostly directed to those you view as maybe peers or in the same circle as you versus, I don't know, conservative journalists or something like that? Yeah, it... um. I mean, I think conservative journalism is in a state of total disrepair, and I think conservative intellectualism in the States is mostly a disaster. I mean, I have huge problems with it. And, you know, Trump Trump was the nominee among conservatives. He got he I mean, it's crazy that it even happened, but it happened. So I spent a lot of my career pointing that out and highlighting the problems with it, and I still do sometimes. But I, I just also think at the end of the day, it's important for your side to have some integrity. And more and more, I see the stuff the um, bad stuff we've typically attributed to conservatives, I feel like we're doing it. And I also feel like if you if you take seriously ending racism or enacting social justice, you need to do so from a place of integrity, of sort of um, scientific rigor. I think a lot of this stuff has fallen by the wayside, in part because conservatives have flown off the handle and we're now run by a, a really monstrous president. So yeah, I do worry sometimes. Like, I don't want to focus entirely on the left. And I, I think in the grand scheme of things, like, we still have a far-right government in power. I just think the two problems are, are connected in various ways. I took you far away from the original question, but I appreciate you answering all those things. Oh, no problem. 
<laughs> so flipping back to fictional characters, I guess I'll ask why Flip McVicker from BoJack Horseman is your profile picture on Twitter. Yeah, he Flip is a uh, everyone should watch BoJack Horseman. It's a genuinely brilliant show. Um, Flip is this like really hackish writer who's just like so uh, the so the image I have, which people can look up, is like he's just sort of pecking away at his keyboard. On the on the whiteboard at the back, he has things written like gritty riffs, and he has Bukowski <laughs> circled. It's just like he's <laughs> scraping the bottom of his very small intellectual talent barrel, and like uh, he's just sort of pathetic. I just I think it's a funny self self denigrating uh, profile photo. But what's funny is like there's a lot of people mad at me online because of the, some of the writing I've done on um, certain subjects, and they they don't understand that it's self denigrating. They think that I watch this show with this character is clearly meant to be a scumbag and pathetic and i was like yeah i want to be that guy uh <laughs> so it's just it's very funny how like internet culture works and how people can't even um you know give your enemies a little bit more credit than that but uh i think all writers sometimes feel a little bit see a little bit of themselves in this guy just because he's such a schmuck and doesn't doesn't really know what he's doing <laughs> I love Bojack Horseman too, and I appreciate you explaining that. I I don't think that self-deprecating humor does go real no. well on Twitter. I've noticed you either. Well, unfortunately, it sounds like you've had people assume like you didn't catch on that he's supposed to not be a great writer, which is right. a whole another thing. But I think the other thing is sometimes people really try to reassure you or think that you're. Well, I guess people do that on Twitter actually, is they do say negative things about themselves for reassurance. So maybe it's confusing when you try to joke about it. It was. It's know. very weird that anyone would think. You know, it's fine with me if you don't like my work, but don't accuse me of. It's like no one would ever watch that show and be like, "Yep, I want to be that guy." So <laughs> this is a very important conundrum that I've encountered. That's I. Yeah, it surprises me that people think that, but I don't know. That's you have a much bigger audience following the things that you say than I do, so I'll enjoy the luxury of most people not noticing what I tweet. <laughs> oh, yeah, it can uh, it can have downsides. So it sounds like it. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of moving away, like that you've seen some advantages of moving away from Twitter into your newsletter because you've had more interactions with people that are not on Twitter. And I, I really enjoy your newsletter. I, it's really interesting. I think it's clear that you put a lot of effort into it and you cover a range of topics that I'm really interested in science, social justice, psychology, and various news things. But in your opinion, why should everyone subscribe to your newsletter? Oh, wow. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested in the stuff you and I have been talking about, I, I cover that stuff a lot. And um, I've really enjoyed writing it. It's become sort of a pretty sustainable like side gig pretty quickly which has been really um it's been rewarding and i, I appreciate that i've really developed a, a small group of like dedicated readers who send me really smart feedback yeah i, I just think if, if you like you know this kind of stuff the, the question of how journalists should act and where science and social justice clash you'll probably find some stuff that's useful so go to jessysingle.substack.com and uh if you don't like it you do not have to subscribe you send out stuff it seems like two or three times a week on average, right? Yeah, if your uh, paid subscribers get two to three uh, things a week, and there's a free weekly one, and the podcast, I also send the podcast out through the newsletter, so that uh, it's about once a week. So in addition to the podcast, and then also covering other things, kind of in text, you also do ask me any things. Is that that's for paid subscribers? Yeah, the first Friday of every month, I do uh, and ask me anything. Uh, 
which is fun. People people have great questions. I have not asked you anything on those things. Though. We can consider this podcast a bit. This has been like a multi-part Ask Me Anything. That's true. Okay. Is there anything else I should talk to you about before we wrap up today? In part because I'm under-caffeinated, nothing's coming to mind at the moment. But um, yeah, I always like talking to you, Katie, and I, I hope... Uh, yeah, I, I've enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'm glad you had my friend Randolph Bricky on a couple times. He's great. He has a great voice for podcasting too. He really does, doesn't he? He's he's awesome because now he like he had the idea for the last show, so he's actually really helped. Yeah, I just started uh, listening to that uh, Primal Fear. I just started listening to that earlier today. But um, no, I, I really appreciate coming on. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.